Today on Sagittarian Matters, we are talking about the connections between turfs and fascism, plus the word dyke, with special guest Greta LaFleur. Stay tuned. Hello from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studios in Tahunga, California. Listeners, I have just returned from a meditation retreat, and so I do not have the level of ranting and raving in my soul that I sometimes do, but I did want to tell you a few things before we started the show. Number one, there is a chipmunk in my yard. It is a solo chipmunk. I haven't seen any chipmunk friends You know, it's either Chip or Dale Rescue Ranger, but it's just one of them. Is he wearing a trench coat and a Sherlock hat? He is. But he is really utilizing all of the house-shaped bird feeders that I have. He will go into the little house, look at me through the windows, look at me through the door, stick his tail out the door. Sometimes when he can tell I'm watching him, he will pause wherever he is and start swaying his tail back and forth. It's kind of like when you see a beauty pageant queen on a float and she has her little cupped hand and she's just moving her arm back and forth from the elbow. That's what his tail is doing. It's a sway. It's not a, it's not kind of a, like it's not a squirrel tail. It's a swaying tail. Anyway, I'm really enjoying watching him. I'm sorry I'm freaking him out by watching him, but I'm really just sitting behind my desk and I moved my head. In other news, I'm actively editing my 500-page diary comic anthology that's coming out this year with Phase 8 Publishing. Stay tuned. I will let you know how to order it the minute I have that information. And I'm also going to be hitting the comics scene. If you would like a review copy, if you are a reviewer for some kind of publication or website or podcast, let me know. You can contact me through the Sagittarian Matters Instagram page, which is Sagittarian Matters. Lastly, but not least, I wanted to tell you I'm doing a reading uh, this Friday, March 24th at Heavy Manners Library in Los Angeles, California. You can get more information and you can get tickets at, I guess you should just Google Heavy Manners Library. How about that? Okay. I hope that you enjoy my talk with Greta LaFleur. I could not find the episode that we were both referencing But I did talk to Greta for my other podcast, The Gay Amazing Race, with Karen Tongson, and also Greta's best friend Palomi was on with her. So go find that if you want to hear more. In the meantime, enjoy the show. Greta LaFleur is an associate professor of American Studies at Yale University and the author or editor of three books and three journal special issues, including the new issue of Transgender Studies Quarterly, Trans Exclusionary Feminisms and the Global New Right, which was co-edited with Serena Bassi. You can get this special issue right now from dukeupress.edu. But in the meantime, please enjoy my talk with friend to the show, Greta LaFleur. Greta LaFleur, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. I'm very happy to be here as ever. Have you been on the show before? You know, You've been I said on the... that I, I thought I thought we maybe had. Am I making this up? You were years? on the Gay Amazing Race. I wasn't like maybe I'm thinking of the Gay Amazing Race. Yes, but I feel like you have been on Sagittarian Matters. I also before. feel like I've been on Sagittarian Matters before, but I don't remember what we were talking about. But me neither. Here's... Welcome back, and kudos to you on the longevity of your show. <laughs> Thank you. It was obviously so long ago. Yeah, that we <laughs> don't recall. Speaks to like the endurance of the program. But we did Zoom before. When I was working on that gender book for kids with Judith Butler, and I was mm-hmm. like, Greta, give me a primer on Judith yes. Butler. Gender theory. Mm-hmm. And I still owe you a portrait of your dog that I was going to oh, oh exchange your dog, Marge. Um, but it was very helpful. Okay. Well, I'm glad. And it's yeah. funny because now we're talking about gender theory again, just in a different way. We're talking about gender theory again in a different way. Okay. So, um, where do I begin? Where do I begin? Hold on. I'm doing a deep scroll oh, yeah. and that's where I begin. So you wrote, you co-wrote the introduction to um, an issue of Transgender Studies Quarterly about TERFs 
gender critical movements, and post-fascist feminisms. And you co-wrote it with Serena Bassi. Yeah. So I wanted to have you come on the show because I've, I have been really, you know, obviously maddened by TERFs and I'm, I'm a person on Twitter. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I can't oh, tell yeah. what's real and what's just on Twitter Absolutely. and maybe Twitter's real, but maybe Twitter's not real. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's hard to know with Twitter. It's hard to know. Maybe it's going to happen. Maybe it's, maybe it's collapsing. Maybe what's happening on it is true. Maybe it's not. Yeah. Because, you know, you and I are in a similar circle of mm-hmm. radical queer people of a certain age. And so it almost feels like TERFs are like a figment of people's imagination or maybe just JK Rowling. I don't know, but then they're actually quite real. And so I wanted to talk to you about um, the connection between TERFs and fascism. Yes. When I was so excited to see that you were writing about this and thinking about this. So I guess I wanted to ask you just in a real plain, basic terms for anyone who's just tuning in being like, well, what's that? What, what's a TERF? How would you define a TERF? Okay, so the the easiest way is, so think about TERF. TERF is an acronym. Um, so TERF stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. And um, TERF as a term, there, someone, I, I actually know that someone has written an article on the like where the term actually comes from and I'm blanking on like the actual um, origination of the, the word, but um, it's a word that I started hear, hearing tossed around in probably the late 90s, a lot in the early 2000s. And it basically describes, um, it describes a phenomenon, and I think it's a, a useful word because it dra- describes a phenomenon wherein you have like really feminist identified people, right? Like people and movements that actively identify as feminists, that organized around, around like feminist issues, that um, pay attention to like things like gender-based hierarchy and gender-based violence um, so that you're like, oh yeah, like I can get on board with that. But um, the, the big distinguishing factor between like just general feminists, I mean, I don't actually know if there's, if there's anything that unites all feminists, which I'm happy to talk about later, but, um, but like what makes TERF specific is that um, they understand women or the term woman to only mean uh, like cisgender women. So um, for lack of a better word, uh, like people or lack of a better phrase, people who are like assigned female at birth. I don't usually use that, but in here it's a little, it's a little bit useful to sort of use that phrase. Yeah. And are they, this, this new kind of batch or the way we're recognizing these people now and thinking about Twitter, are they the same people from second wave feminism? Are they no. new people? Do they have anything in common? Yeah. So, so yes, so that's, this is, that's another great question. Um, and so, so the answer is yes and no, really. So um, there is, um, you know, there is like a longstanding trans exclusionary radical feminist, like turf movement. Um, in uh, the US, in Canada, in England, um, it, there's a kind of like um, Anglophone, like there's like a belt of like Anglophone feminists that I think have sort of um, uh, like through which like turf ideology kind of spread um, starting in like the 70s and sort of moving forward to our own moment. And some of those people are still around writing. Um, there's like people like um, uh, Sheila Jeffries or Janice Raymond who are like like probably some of the loudest TERFs that I know of, um, or like loudest TERFs before the internet, I guess I should say. Um, but then now what we're also seeing is a movement of people who would not res- like call to themselves TERFs, although TERFs also don't refer to themselves as TERFs and many TERFs understand TERF, like the word TERF or the acronym TERF to be a slur, which I think is um, silly because it's not, it's, it's descriptive. Do you know what I mean? It's a, they are trans-exclusionary radical feminists. They identify as radical fe- feminists but they don't understand trans women as women. They're trans exclusionary, so they're, ter- they're TERFs. Um, I don't think it's a slur, it's just a description. Um, but, uh, but they don't like being called that because it sort of shows their exclusionary principles and, for- and sort of foregrounds their uh, exclusionary principles. So alongside TERFs, there's like a, another sort of um, kind of related set of movements um, that, that sort of travel under the moniker um, of gender critical feminists. So like, I wouldn't say that gender critical feminists have entire over, like are entirely overlap with TERFs. Um, I would say TERFs often, not exclu- not always, but often um, tend to be more involved in like, like queer and lesbian communities. Like there's, I think there's more queer TERFs, if that makes sense, or gay TERFs or lesbian TERFs or whatever. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Whereas gender critical feminists, I feel like you see this much more um, around like sort of like uh, very mainstream feminist movements, especially in England. Like I think of it as something that sort of found its tr- like found its earliest traction in England, but that's also had this like global influence. So you see people um, who identify as feminists 
all over the world who will who will criticize what they call gender ideology. So the idea that gender and sex are distinct ex ex experiences. And then finally, um, you have just people who are anti what they call gender ideology. Um, so you have, and that that runs the gamut from turfs like all the way over to like like really really right wing um, politicians, activists, uh, evangelical religious groups, um, stuff like that. So like I think about like Viktor Orban, like the, you know the leader of Hungary is like someone who I would say is like very very strongly uh, sort of moving against and creating policy. Um, that's 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 about like put like eradicating gender ideology. So the idea that um, that gender expression could be distinct from sort of the sexual organization of your body. So what your genitals look like. How do what's the connection? Or well, should should we take turf seriously? So like yes and no. I have another yes and no. So on the on the no, I do I think that there's any merit in um, trying to distinguish between different kinds of womanhood, cisgender, trans, tra transgender, non-binary, like any any sort of iterated iteration of womanhood, no. I definitely think that that is like an like just a totally vacuous, disingenuous way of thinking about um, of thinking about gender-based hierarchies. I don't think it's a way forward for like enacting feminist politics for like finding um, a sort of route towards feminist liberation or various, you know, visions of feminist liberation. Yet, uh, turfs are nonetheless incredibly, like, increasingly powerful. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's more, we've really seen a lot of, um, a lot of, like, turf thinking, like, so trans-exclusionary radical feminist thinking sort of ground itself um, in, like, powerful institutions, state legislatures, federal legislatures, um, university psychology departments, philosophy departments, sometimes women's studies departments. Um, there is a Oxford University Press, which is an incredibly well-respected academic press, um, is publishing uh, like an anthology. It's like, I think it's the first one that I've seen that's like called gender critical feminism. Do you know what I mean? And so that's like a book that like is available to order that you could as a women's studies professor order and teach in your class. And it has like the sort of imprimatur of um, Oxford University Press on it, which is like, again, this incredibly respected institution. So in that case, yeah, I think we should be taking them seriously because they pose a real threat to um, to various ways of thinking about feminist justice that um, center the experience of trans and gender nonconforming people and understand like all of us to be united by the experience of like of gender disparities and um, and uh, gender based oppression, you know? Yeah. Well, what's the, can I, I feel like we're like right here. Like what's the connection to fascism? Well, I, well, I mean, and, and we are right here and that's that's what's so terrifying. Um, well, I feel like, I mean, I think let's just also talk about what fascism means. And one of the things that was really fun about, um, I mean, fun is a weird way of talking about fascism, but one of the ways that, one of the things <laughs> that was really enjoyable about writing the introduction with Serena Bossi is um, my friend Serena is also my colleague. She's an Italian studies professor here at Yale. Um, uh, Serena is uh, a scholar of fascism. So I, I'm not. Um, Serena works on modern Italy um, and also like is kind of like thinks about like global fascist movements. So I really learned a lot from Serena as we were working on this piece. Like the really the I feel like the bulk of the some of the connections to fascism were things that Serena wrote. Um, but if you but I don't think you actually need a theory of fascism to understand how like turf and other forms of gender critical or um, or uh, gender critical or, or like sort of anti-gender ideology um, end up in, in sort of right-wing or broadly fascist or authoritarian movements. So again, Hungary is a great example, although I don't wanna to point to Hungary and suggest that it is not happening in the United States because it absolutely is, but I'll tell you, like I'll talk about Hungary first. So, um, so Hungary is a really good example because Orban, Viktor Orban, um, who is, you know, he started as this kind of populist leader. There's a good piece, I'm trying to remember, what it was in, I want to say it was in the Atlantic, but maybe it was in the New Yorker. There's a good like profile of Victor Orban um, uh, that that like if you're interested is definitely worth reading. So he started as this kind of populist, um, like left left wing kind of thinker. Um, ended up in power, didn't want to give up power, and like I feel like this is a trajectory trajectory we've seen a lot. Um, ended up basically like um, sort of like slowly and subtly changing things like election laws, um, gerrymandering, like do like, you know, voting districts such that basically it ensured that no one would get elected, but him, do you know what I mean? And, and it's just sort of being cut his, his, um, his sort of term. I mean, I don't know how he's been long and he's been in power now. It's, it's a long time. Um, his term is like over the course of his, his, uh, leadership, he's become increasingly sort of authoritarian. And one of the ways that he's sort of, um, he's sort of uh, 
tried to affect or like wrest control over the sort of organization of the state is through like gender and sexual politics. So there's like all these incentives around uh, heterosexual marriage, for example. Um, there's all of like a host of new laws and other forms of disenfranchisements around like um, having any sort of uh, gender non-conforming identity around um, like any sort of like homosexual status. I love saying homosexual, gay, lesbian, bisexual, whatever you are, um, queer. Uh, and so, so like, and I feel like this is one of the ways you kind of like, Hungary is a really good way, like good case for looking at it. That being said, here in the United States, you know, I think as I speak, if I, I, I may have the number wrong, but it's something like 17 or 18 states have pending legislation that, um, that bars, uh, like anyone from offering gender affirming care to youth. We have the don't say gay laws in Florida. Um, one of the things that, um, uh, Florida introduced a bill, I think it's HB 999, just this week, I believe, um, that uh, targets um, K through 12 institutions, but also state universities. Actually, it might just only target state universities, um, but that that would ban gender studies as a major, um, that that uh, bans talking about gender or uh, gender ideology. So I think, I mean, I feel like that's a really clear example of some of the sort of fascist tendencies. I mean, barring barring uh topics from being spoken about i mean that is like baldly authoritarian you know what i mean like that's like that's like right out of right out of a fascist playbook um and also doing so in in a sort of populist way and i think we see this with like um rick DeSantis. we really saw this with trump um that sort of imagines that sort of uh creates a kind of like landscape of gender politics where it's like well, we're the normals and we don't want the encroachment of the left telling us that we have a gender. Like we don't have a gender. We're just like regular folks working our regular jobs. Of course, it's not true. Everyone has a gender. Do you know what I mean? Like whether or, or some people identify as a gender. Some people would argue that that's a gender or not a gender, whatever. But like, you know, but gender experience is like, you know what I mean? Like women for Trump is a gender experience. Yeah. Yeah. So no. that was a lot. I've got a lot. No, to say, no. Really. Well, Gosh, you know, it's, it's hard. Can you describe, can you talk a little bit about, because I know some people that identify as feminists or radical feminists mm -hmm. kind of reject TERFs yes. as feminists or like they're not feminists, Yes, yes. but there is a long history of feminists not being intersectional indeed, or, or indeed. just being for themselves in particular white feminists, just being for themselves. Yeah. So this is actually the thing that I really wanted to get across. This was the part of the, the introduction that I that felt most important to me is I see over and over again, like feminist people, queer people, um, uh, people who are doing anti-racist work, like people who are doing anti-borders work, like people who are like generally broadly um, somewhere on the left saying, well, like we don't have to worry about TERFs. Like we don't have to worry about trans-exclusionary feminism because that's not feminism. And and I see it, I see it from like some of the like, the thinkers I like most respect and most admire and most like whose politics I feel like I've learned so much from. And this is just a moment where I think we all need to take a step back and like look at the history of feminist organizing in the United States and elsewhere, which has really been, um, especially in its sort of mainstream and most like legally entrenched versions, it's been very exclusionary. You know what I mean? And like, I think about, I mean, this is a much younger moment in my life, but I remember seeing an interview with Missy Elliott in maybe like, I don't know, like the early 2000s at some point, you know, I love Missy Elliott then and now. Um, and um, she said something in the interview where she was like, oh, I'm not a feminist. And I was like, what? Like, what? Like, I was just like horrified by this. But of course, like, you know, I do some, you know, I do another few, uh, you know, years of work and, you know, reading and writing, uh, you know, as a white scholar. And I think that's like, that's the sort of critical term here. Uh, I'm reading about like what the history of exclusions um, within feminism, especially in the United States have been. And it makes total sense to me why Missy Elliott would be like, I don't identify with feminism. Do you know what I mean? Which is not to say there aren't a ton of black feminists, feminists who are like, yes, like feminism is my thing. But um, the sort of bind between especially sort of mainstream legislative feminism, what's often termed white feminism today, and like whiteness or the prerogatives of white people is, is a particularly like sort of strong history. And I feel like if we start there and we say, okay, we have this history of exclusions. We have like histories of um, feminists in the United States being like, yes, we should invade Afghanistan to like save the women there. You know, and I, I'm putting all of this around in very, very heavy quotes because this is incredibly specious. Like, you know, that's feminism, like working in the service of imperialism, right? And so I feel like when we start there and we look at that, of course, of course, TERFs are feminists. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just another iteration 
of an oppressive kind of brand of feminism. Um, and feminism has always been able to accommodate a kind of like, a, like various types of oppressive oppression. And I think, um, I think that like when we, when we hold that, I think it, I, I hope that it would like put pressure on those of us who are saying like, well, TERFs aren't feminist. Like, cause you know, feminism can't, you know, um, can't brook transphobia. Feminism can absolutely brook transphobia and that's part of the problems. And I think, I think one of the things I've been really wrestling with as over the course of working on that special issue, but also over the course of like the last like 30 years of my life is like feminism's ambivalent character. I think we want feminism to be good. We want feminism to be pure. We want it to be this thing that, um, that we can hold on to as this like political good. And I mean, like most like sets of politics, it's not that, do you know what I mean? We can make it that um, when we really try and when we constantly work at it, but like anything that um, is easily subsumable into sort of like corporate DEIA initiatives is probably a problem. You know what I mean? Including, including some types of feminism. I mean, it is, I guess, I mean, I know it, there is no answer to like, what does it mean to push back against those fascist branches of something that has been so dear to so many people? Yes. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's been kind of hard to address. You know what I mean? Because um, I think, yeah, I think, I think one of the reasons that it's been hard to, to address is that I think there's like a whole cadre of feminists. And I think there is a way that it does track with whiteness. And, you know, I 100% include myself in like, in feeling this reticence, where like when you want something to be good, you don't want to look at it and be like, oh, this thing, this thing does harm, right? Like it's hard. We have an attachment. We have like emotional attachments to um to like political ideals. Like we have emotional attachments to people. And when you have feminism as a as a political ideal, especially if you're someone that you feel like feminism is served, and I certainly feel like I am one of those people. And again, I don't think there's any way to think about that outside of like my own experience of whiteness. Um, if you if you're one of those people that you feel like feminism has served you, like it's it, you you know you you invest even more. Um, and I'm not giving up on feminism. I want to be very clear about that. Like I am a feminist. I believe that like righteous feminist politics is 100 like part of the way forward. Um, but like I think that having like a very clear eyed view of what the histories of feminism and presence is of feminism's exclusions are is 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 the way there is the way towards that sort of righteous iteration of feminist work. Excellent. Um. I wanted to ask you, gosh, there's a lot. Um, I want to take a quick pivot to ask you about butches. Oh yeah, let's <laughs> talk about butches. What yeah. of the butches? I heard recently a friend of mine is a professor, if you can believe that, mm-hmm. and told me that her butch non-binary partner kind of almost had to start identifying as they, them in class so that students wouldn't think she was a TERF. Yeah. Which I had never heard of, but this was a new, I mean, I do, I feel, I was like, whoa, look at that. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Grandma's on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes. So I, I, I really, um, Oh man, I know. I'm like, it's, I'm more like just trying to figure out how to like organize my thoughts around this. Let me just start by saying that's absolutely a real effect as like a, like a butch identified person, but who also like, who understands butchness as a form of gender nonconformity. And, and, and for me, like butchness is something that for me is on the trans spectrum. Do you know what I mean? Um, although that is also complicated because like not all trans people think of butchness, but as like, you know, butch experiences on the trans spectrum. Um, but, uh, so I 100% that, uh, understand that feeling. Do you know what I mean? And there is, there is a way that I do, um, you know, like, and, and this is, you know, the, the most generous read around, um, uh, around my students and your friends, students perhaps too, is that like, you know, they're really excited. They want, they come to, especially like sort of, um, gender studies classes, ethnic studies classes, American studies classes, like they come wanting the kind of, um, grounded political education that they're like engaging in social media spaces that they that, you know that they want like depth and they want to talk about it more or they're excited about it um but there is a way that I think because of like um and I feel like I'm like really just doing the middle age thing of like blaming social media and like social media but like <laughs> I think if we think about most media not not even just social media most media like writ large is short form right like Twitter is like whatever it is, 114 characters. Um, most as someone who's like done public facing writing for like various um, 
like online and print for a, like it's rare that you're going to get more than like 2,500 words of space. And that's if you get a lot, do you know what I mean? A lot of people want like 750 to a thousand words. Um, it's like, they're all short forms. And when you're working in short forms, um, you're not really able to like get into the, like the nuance and the nitty gritty and the complexity of a lot of these issues. And I think for a lot of my students, one of the things that I hammer all the time, um, and, and that I, and it's like a sort of, uh, uh, um, prejudice is a weird word, but it's like a perception that they bring to the classroom. The, the, one of the things they bring to the classroom is the idea that all quote unquote second wave feminism was turf, was like was turfy, which is profoundly, profoundly not true. Um, and, you know, like, I think like some of the, some of the earliest trans centered feminism was from the quote unquote second wave. I also hate the idea of waves because I don't, I don't, A, I don't think they're that discontinuous, but I also don't think that they're so continuous that we could think of them as one, two, and three waves. But anyway, that's a second, a separate question. Um, so they'll come in and they'll be like, oh, like second wave feminists were turfs. And I'm like, okay, first of all, there's about 60 billion varieties of second, of what you were calling second wave feminism. I was earlier just today writing about like some of the earliest um, prison abolitionist feminisms from the 60s and 70s, for example. And that's something that I feel like doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, so first of all, there's a million different varieties. And second of all, TERFs were actually in that moment, an incredibly tiny, very loud minority, but incredibly small uh, minority. But students come in with that perception and they want to feel like they have allies in the classroom, right? And so I really understand that perception. At the same time, um, I also will talk to my students and I, I teach a trans studies class every year. And I always open it up by being like, look, we are going to be experiencing in this classroom micro-generational differences. Although now that I'm like 41, it's actually just like a generation. So maybe I'll have to start saying generational differences. But like, we're going to experience micro-generational differences. My experience of like what transness means, what gender nonconformity means, like what gender at all means is going to be different from yours. Many of yours will be different from each other. And like, we need to give each other grace in this moment and not assume that because something is different that it's coming from, that so the person is coming from a bad place. Like maybe it's just fucking different, you know? And, um, and I will tell my students that I am a butch identified person and I do. And one of the things we start out with are some of like the earliest trans studies essays where people will constantly, they'll constantly like give this like um, trans umbrella uh, definition. Many people don't like the trans umbrella now, but it's useful to sort of bring students to, but butches are always on butches, queens, like, um, you know, like, uh, like, like, you know, like all sorts of people sort of fall under the trans umbrella. And I think it's helpful to like bring them to that. Um, and, the, you know, there's a couple other essays that kind of also like theorize that those intersections. But the other tricky thing, the other reason, if it's okay, am I going on too Please, long? Please, no, riff. Okay. The only, the other reason that they think this is because turfs have also like taken up butches as these like, these like, like dying extinct communities of like dinosaurs that need to be saved. Do you know what I mean? So like um, there was that famous piece um, or this famous article from a few years ago where this like turf, I'm trying to remember who it was. It's cited, I cited in the um, footnotes to the article or to the, to the introduction that Serena and I wrote, but they, where the person was like, well, I went to the coffee shop and I saw someone that would have been a butch in an early day, but who's now like a trans identified person. And this is butch genocide. And so this is actually to bring us back to the fascist stuff. What that person was riffing on is like far right, uh, right wing and really actually alt-right um, like rhetoric of like white genocide, like the concern that like, and you see this around like anti-immigration rhetoric, all sorts of nativist like shit um, where people will be like, white people are being taken over. I mean, of course it's trash, um, but like, but but again, you see the white genocide thing and this person was riffing on that. And I, I just feel like in that moment, I'm like, oh yeah, like this turf is, and I, and again, I, this is a white person. And I feel like, I, I just feel like you just can't take the politics of whiteness out of this. Um, I'm like, you're sitting around at night and you're like reading turf chat rooms and you're reading alt-right chat rooms. And you're like, both of these things are happening at the same time and they bleed into one another. And, um, and that's one of the reasons that I actually really insist on like talking to my students about like being a butch identified person is because I'm like, like, like there's no disappearance of butches. Do you know what I mean? There's like lots of different things that shape people's gender identifications in any given moment. Um, and like, who knows if I was born today, maybe I would identify differently, but I wasn't born today. I was born in 1981. So like, and that was the sort of the thing that sort of worked out for me. And I think, I mean, even when I hear people will casually be like, there's a butch shortage, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you're just not looking. Do you know what I mean? Like, 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 
when I hear but shortage I'm like your class politics are bad like because you're like only working in like a particular you're only working in a particular like professional cross-section where like gender looks differently do you know what I mean but like butches are around you just you just gotta like you know what I mean look outside your like narrow narrowly defined little geography to find them yeah I, if I mean if when when there's not butches there but there's butches everywhere like I have like a million bitch colleagues I don't know I mean, I remember J.K. Rowling kind of taking this up, being oh, like, "God, I have a lesbian friend, and she's butch." I, I, okay. Also, the straight turfs need to fucking stop trying to save lesbians. Like, do you know what I mean? like, like, not only I have. I mean, I'm actually going to go ahead and like name this person. I have like a colleague in early American studies who's a historian named Anne Little, whose work in many ways I really like. But she kind of took this like she all of a sudden started like got on this like turf this like turf train and she started tweeting things like you know I I don't like accept trans women as women because I want to defend my lesbian friends I'm like fucking get away from me like I don't need your fucking defense <laughs> like I'm very happy with my like trans dyke sisters and like stay the fuck away from all of us you know so I, I don't know if I should have just shouted her out but actually I'm fine with her shouting it out so it's like there is that kind of like straight women like lesbian saviorship thing happening where I'm just like you know nothing about lesbians JK Rowling knows nothing about lesbians stay the fuck away from lesbians and you know let us let us sort of get together and like you know um keep organizing in sort of anti-transphobic ways as we as most of us have for the better part of the last 50 years also who asked her who the fuck asked her who asked her there's no lesbians care about jk rowling's of her like like feelings no none of us care no i feel like she did a real like remember like dave Chappelle was like i've got one trans friend don't give me a hard time i feel like jk rowling like went hunting for a lesbian and was like (laughs) like like that person's like works for her or something was like doing the landscaping at her house and then she was like i have a very good lesbian friend it was definitely the landscaper i'm glad that we (laughs) identified that it might have been the pool boy or the the dog walker (laughs) <laughs> definitely could have been the dog walker perhaps her tennis pro you know what I mean there's a lot of different options no but it's not one of her greatest pals her greatest no. trumps is like JK can I tell Joe can I tell you <laughs> the deepest problem that lesbians suffer in this day and age yeah That's other trans other trans <laughs> just I know it's just um and I mean it's so disingenuous and I think that's the thing that just grosses me out so much I'm like don't pretend you care about lesbians there's no lesbians in Harry Potter. I mean, there are, but they're not. Like, well, um, I think the the divination professor, like, look at that, like, witchy-ass lady. Trelawney? Like, I think, no. no. <laughs> um, the one who plays um, uh, uh, Emma. What, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Professor that Trelawney. Oh, that, that, oh that's, that's her name. With the okay, big, that's... weird glasses? Big, weird glasses. <laughs> Killed by Voldemort. You know what yeah. I mean? Eaten by the snake. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel like I hired her at one point when I like had a bad breakup and I needed like truth about the future, you know? And she came and she staged you. Yeah. She and brought she her own exact same outfit. <laughs> she came to my house too. And she had a homemade uh, maraca made out of bulb kelp. Yeah. That's that a- she found on the beach. <laughs> yeah. She like went diving for it as part of her sort of sustainable kelp farming community that she's in. Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was exactly. Real space clearing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, speaking of JK Rowling, like, I remember there was kind of this, I wonder if you can talk about the, the way that TERFs are kind of diverting from movements that empower and center Black lives, like yes. around Black Lives Matter, JK Rowling was like full force, full volume talking about defending women at all costs. Yes. And that also kind of intersects with this turfy sort of like um, female fragility or woman, like the, the like vulnerability of women yes. and, oh, we have to protect women. Oh God. Yeah. This is, this is like so important because I also, um, cause I feel like you really see, um, you really see the prioritization of a particular type of like feminist po- politics in like in turf work where they're like, they're like, you know, this, there's danger. There's danger in bathrooms. There's danger in stadiums. There's danger, danger in women's prisons. But they don't mean because prisons themselves are dangerous, which they are. They mean that there's dangers of like, of like being like assaulted by like trans women, which is like the least of anyone who's ever been incarcerated, like, like concerns. 
Um, so like, I mean, so yeah, so there's this general investment and I, I actually am literally writing a book about this right now, which is not, which is not the TSQ special issue. Um, there's this general investment and I think it's a very, very tracks very tightly, um, with whiteness again, not, not exclusively. It also, it also tracks with like cl class stuff, but like frequently whiteness and wealth obviously go together. Um, so there's this real investment in like, in, in, um, asserting, uh, women and by what women, I mean, usually white, usually cisgender, um, women's, uh, vulnerability and especially vulnerability to sexual assault. Like, like one of the book I'm writing is about like the way that like politics around sexual assault have used, have been used by feminists to like really affect all these sorts of like nefarious ends, um, including things like carceral feminism, you know, like, uh, incarceration, um, the expansion of the criminal law, et cetera. But, um, but there's this real, but I, I think one of the reasons that there's such an investment in um, this kind of like politics of danger is because it's very politically powerful. Do you know what I mean? When you say like, well, like, is your wife going to be safe in a public bathroom in North Carolina? People are like, oh God, like, is my wife going to be safe in a public bathroom in North Carolina? And like, you know, I, I, there's something very compelling about danger. And there's also, I think there's a way that um, insisting on one's harmability um, it, it's, it's, it's a way and like how to say this in a way that's like, not something I disagree with. Let me think about this. Like the under patriarchy, I think that most feminine people or people who have had experience of being feminized and then that, you know, that cuts across like, like literally like 75% of people, at least most people who have the experience of like femininity or being feminized or being perceived as feminine, feminine understand the danger there is danger in that right like i'm not saying that there isn't there isn't um there isn't like a kind of uh like uh organization of social violence that does target femininity of all shapes and sizes and like that again that's racialized it's class it's like also there's all sorts of like little permutations of that and i think that because so many people recognize this when you have these like white women especially those in like powerful positions or who have a lot of cultural capital like for example jk Rowling being like, we need to organize as women because like we are in danger. That does speak to people, right? Like people are like, yeah, like I know the experience of that because of, you know, X, Y, Z, A, B, and C. The thing is when people start organizing around that, usually it's like only protecting like a really, 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 like the, the focus is on like a really, really, really narrow like sort of cohort of people. And in this case, cisgender women, right? Um, often girls are invoked, right? I don't know if you saw Abigail Schreier's terrible book called... Um, uh hold on the trans the the subtitle is the trans tra the transgender craze seducing our daughters but the the like it's, it's got this horrible cover where it's like it's like a 1950s like paper doll but like her like her like junk is cut out there's just like an empty hole where her junk used to be <laughs> sorry i mean i love i love the drama of it like as a leo like yeah just go there like whoever designed that cover i'm like like can you design my next book cover just not make it turvy um but, uh, but, you know, so I think that speaks to a lot of people. And again, there's like a lot of emphasis on like, on um, the sexual vulnerability of women and girls. And generally what that's meant is like, like white people or people with like various types of institutional access. Do you know what I mean? Like there's not, um, and, and you'll see people like JK Rowling among other people will toss around issues of like safety for like, like cisgender women in prison or cisgender women in homeless shelters. And I'm just like, I'm like, you know, maybe the bigger problems affecting like a much larger cross-section of people, including trans and cis women, is incarceration, is like not having access to secure housing, right? But of course they don't want to do that because like that kind of structural critique in that you lose, you lose your commitment to turfism and it becomes like economic and racial and they don't want to focus on that stuff. You know what I mean? And I think like the most engagement that I've seen with a lot of TERFs around stuff, um, around the Black Lives Matter movement, around um, various types of like anti-racist feminisms have been like really trying to think like narrowly about particular, what they think of as like women's issues, which like sometimes comes down to like, is often like limited to sort of reproductive rights, but they don't even want to think about, um, they don't even want to think about the kinds of like reproductive justice issues that really disproportionately affect women of color, you know, so it's just like, um, or people of color, people and often gestational parents, women and gestational parents of color. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but like, yeah, there's just, um, you scratch the surface of the sort of rhetoric of like racial justice in turf movements and it, it disappears. There's nothing there. You know what I mean? There's no there there.
Today's episode is brought to you by Jenna Luna, Kale McHurst, Maura Bainbridge, Colleen Garland, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular, producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, $15, $15 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo. Hell Books, that's H-E, double hockey sticks, books on Venmo. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. I don't know if you feel like you've covered this, but I want to know how does the rise of turf, how does it actually benefit fascists? Oh my God. Fascism. Yeah. So um, here, let me. So I think there's a couple different ways. So number one, I think that gender as an idea um, gets, I think it gets rolled into a sort of political package. It's like a, I'm thinking about the 2008 financial crisis. It's like a, it's like a tranche in a, in like one of those like shares that everyone was buying and selling that eventually crashed the economy. But like gender as a set of politics um, and gender identification as a set of politics, I think um, it gets sort of rolled in with things like um, very, like larger LGBT politics. So like everything from like gay marriage to, um, to like decriminalization of particular sexual acts or decriminalization of particular acts in particular places. So I think it gets rolled into that set of politics such that it's easier, um, it's easier for them to be like sort of out of hand rejected. And generally, like, if you think about, um, if you think about what some of, uh, what a lot of, uh, like what a lot of um, trans activists are doing right now, which are like often calling for um economic like you know sort of uh, like reforms and or abolition of like oppressive economic structures opp- oppressive state structures like policing like the state is really invested in um things like capitalism the state is really invested in things like um in things like incarceration the state is really invested in like maintaining that kind of control and those things are institutions of control so part of that is like you know like like it's it's actually like kind of a rejection of other sets of politics but then also um, and and sort of more importantly, like if you think about fascism, fascism almost always has a race politics to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, find me a fascism that didn't have some sort of like very strong, um, like sort of like uh, uh, oh, um, Foucault had a word for this, and I'm blanking. State racism that doesn't have like a state racism for it to it. Like, I, I'll I'll buy you dinner, but I'm I'm like I can't think of any fascist sort of program that has not. And even whether that's about like prioritizing white over black and brown or whether that's about prioritizing Hungarians over anyone who's not from Hungary or prioritizing some sort of like myth of like an originary civilization over like the you know sort of uh you know over like people who are migrating you know over migrants or immigration or people who are coming in bringing different sort of cultural protocols to the to a place um like every sort of fascism every form of fascism has this sort of racial politics to it and um, and if if you want to sort of shore up a racial hierarchy, you you can't do it without you can't do it without a very sort of um, conservative understanding of like gendered and gendered and sexual social organization. Do you know what I mean? Because like you have to make it, you have to incentivize people to sort of um, only sort of stick with their same racial, ethnic, you know, cultural groups. Um, you need a strong like sort of uh, a strong sort of conservative vision of like families because like. Family organization is like, of course, as we know from all these materialist feminists, it's um, it's social organization. It's the way that like it's the way that your ideology is going to be passed down from generation to generation. I mean, there's a lot. There's a very strong um, need for a a really conservative gender and sexual politics for fascism to actually flourish. And if you look at some of the essays at the end of the TSQ, the Trend Studies Quarterly Special Issue that Serena and I did, there's a really good piece that. that uh, uh, Sophie Lewis and Asa Saracen wrote on um, on the way that like women's empowerment was built into like early 20th century fascist fascist movements, including national soci- socialism, Nazism, um, and you really just see you're like oh wow like like fascism wants women to 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 um, it wants to like uh, to sort of use a particular vision of the empowerment of women to sort of um, achieve its various kind of like conservative gender and sexual ends. I don't know if that's too vague. I think it's too vague. Okay. 
I mean, I think it's interesting to think about the incentivizing of sticking with your group. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, it just, it takes me back to feeling like maybe being a million years old, being like with the internet, <laughs> with t- like with whatever, like it, it's really like, it's nothing but giving you the opportunity to be in a micro group, like a micro yes. climate of yes. your exact views. And then yes. maybe some different, but not really, you know, it's not as weird. Yeah. Yeah. As even if you're just like, even if you just had a normal job where you had to go somewhere and hang out with other people that you never would have known. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's part of it too, right? Like if you, if you're invested in like a high degree of social control as most fascists are, you don't want, you don't want your like, you know, whatever, whatever community, whatever cultural community that you're prioritizing, say, say Christians, right? You don't want your Christians, your Christian workers, your Christian families, et cetera, to go hang out with like whatever the deprioritized religion is, right? Which in like Hungary is like both um, Islam, Judaism, I think it's like everything else other than Christianity. Um, uh, But I mean, but but I I don't, I I don't mean to uh, scapegoat Hungary here. Let's just use the United States. Like you don't want, um, there's a reason that like to, to, to sort of change the context, there's a reason that like Rick DeSantis and others like don't want people to say gay in K2, K through 12 classrooms, right? Like that degree of control, you want to like limit what people are exposed to. Like on the cover of the New Yorker this week, there's like a, a I, I don't know if you saw it. There's like a cartoon of um, uh, DeSantis like sharpening his knives and like on in front of him is like a pile of books. You know what I mean? Because like of all the the book bans in um, K through 12 libraries. Like you want to limit act people's access to information. And sometimes people are and communities are other information, right? Like the more sort of hermetic you can make people's experiences of their communities, the more you can sort of shore up um, hierarchies of like, you know, who's going to get the state resources and who's going to be deprioritized and, and found to be disposable. Well, Greta, <laughs> what else? Man. What what did I not ask you that you feel like is important to add to this conversation? I mean, I know in the TSQ, they also was like the links between TERFs and Zionism. There oh, was yeah. Like, so I don't even understand. I didn't even read that part. That's a really that's a really good essay. And actually, that's like the o- that's kind of about like OG TERFs because that that's by um, Heike Schotten. Uh, and she so she looks at like these early Zionist movements among lesbian feminists in the Bay Area and sort of traces like out of their newsletters. Um, so this is from like the 70s um, and maybe even as late, maybe even the late 60s, I'd have to go back and look at the article, but traces the way that you see this like burgeoning conversation that's targeting trans women, like in these specifically Zionist newspapers, which is, I mean, or newsletters that are for like lesbian feminists, Jew- like Jewish lesbian feminists. Um, and it's, I mean, it's just kind of wild, like why, you know what I mean? But, but, um, but I mean, but Heike Schotten has a theory of why, um, and yeah, I mean, there's just, there's, there's so much in there. There's also, um, one of the other pieces I really like is, uh, this piece, hold on, what, uh, by Jenny Avange. I've actually never met this person, so I don't know how to say their last name. I'm going to say Avange, E-V-A-N-G. Um, and, uh, that person writes about the way that, like, TERFs increasingly use like the sort of like like rhetoric of like uh like like uh like post-colonial and like anti-colonial rhetoric to make arguments about why like why gender ideology is a bad thing they're like they're like gender ideology um and this is like a I'm, I'm parroting TERFs here uh gender ideology is something that's imported from the west and like the you know the real authentic experience of gender in whatever like wherever it is we are you know say France, like, you know, Nigeria, China, whatever, um, you know, that's, be, that's like a, that's some sort of Western import. And it's like an iteration of like cultural imperialism that's trying to unseat our like really important, like sort of cultural ways of understanding uh, gen- like, you know, gender in particular, but gender and sexual politics more broadly. And, um, and, it's, it, it, and it's true, you really see that all over the place where people will be like, how dare you impose your transgender ideology on like, you know what I mean? women in India and you're like actually and there's been tons and tons of scholarship on like the million not million is a little extreme but like the many many different um words frameworks um that exist in like you know I mean India is a place with like like so many languages right that exist in like all these different languages and all these different communities and all these different parts of the country for talking about gender non-conforming experience identity um some of those people will also in communities will also use the term transgender when they do things like speak to the state do you know what I mean some people will refuse them but it's like it's a very mixy conversation that like TERFs would want to see flattened 
into like some sort of straight um, Western imperialism equals transgender identity equals oppression of like sort of local ways of understanding gender and sexuality and thus we should reject it all but it's like so disingenuous it's so shitty what's the point well I'm also what's like point? I'm also like a lot of people have access to the internet like do you know what I mean like there's like 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 it's not just like you know that like some American is getting off a plane somewhere I mean and also not to excuse Americans like we've like we've done horribly like imper- and we d- have done and continue to do horribly like you know imperial things and we and, and cultural imperialism is a problem right yeah but like turfs are like using it to sort of refuse the reality of people who are like who are like openly saying I don't identify with like these conventional ways of understanding gender whatever they are in that person's like place and um and it's it's a mess it's a it's a mess it is a mess well See? do you have any glimmers of hope is there anything that keeps you going what is it? Yeah, I mean, I like, I mean, you know, I think about like my friends who are like, you know, um, you know, at this point, like who have been doing activist work for like decades. And I, you know, like the mantra that like you need to believe that you'll win. You know what I mean? Like, and I think I think I've really internalized that. Like, I believe that we'll win. Um, and I do, um, I do think that there's a way, there's a way that like whether people like it or not, um, that like that people, gender non-conforming people, trans people, non-binary people, people who don't sort of like walk easily in step with like whatever the sort of conventional gender common sense of like their their place and their their um like the, the their their everyday lives, um they're really like unsettling um and I mean also we I don't know why I'm talking about myself like like I'm not third every time I go and bought order coffee um but like I feel like we've like really like we're unsettling um, normative ways of doing gender too. You know what I mean? Like I have so many um, like cis masculine or cis like men identified students now, for example, who will like wear dresses to class and who will like, do you know what I mean? Who like talk about their feelings. Like I had someone, I had a student um, in a class uh, like the last time I taught a trans studies class um, and we were talking about, we were talking about violence, like talk about his own experience of sexual assault. And like, I was like, I was like, wow, that's the first time I've heard like a cis man identified person talk about, and a straight cis man identified person, I should mention, um, like just sort of openly talk about sexual assault. And I'm like, that is the payoff of like feminist work. Do you know what I mean? When everyone, um, no, which is not to say it's the only payoff, but like, it's one of the payoffs. And I, I just feel like um, the, the like sort of ripples from this work are felt all over the place um, in all different sort of corners of like people's everyday lives um, such that like, I, I think it's like kind of too big to stop if that makes sense. Like, and I'm not saying there's not like, there's problematic trans politics all over the place. Like, do you know what I mean? I don't, it's not like I agree with like every iteration of like what some people I imagine to be a sort of transgender political left. But at the same time, um, I feel like where we're, we're what, what, what's going on is broadly good. Do you know what I mean? And I don't think there would be as much, for example, state legislation happening trying to ban gender affirming care for kids if there wasn't like if people weren't aware and kind of scared of like the the reality of like um, a sort of like changing cultural consensus around what gender is, you know, and what gender difference is. So I feel optimistic, but I'm I'm generally optimistic. So I don't know. Maybe ask someone who's like a downer. No, <laughs> I just, I just wanted to thank you for having a little, I mean, I, that was a, I, that was, um, you know, just a side note. I don't even know if you had a, a nugget of hope or if you were just like, no, I'm just stewing in the, the pain. I mean, of sometimes, sometimes I do think, I mean, I do, I feel a little bit more, uh, I feel a little bit more pessimistic about like sort of, um, the swing left of like world politics or excuse me, the swing left. I don't feel worried about that. I wish I wish I felt worried. It's not that I wish I felt worried. Anyway, but the swing right um, of global politics or of like politics on a global scale, like do you know what I mean? Like Brazil, India, the United States, Canada, England, like you know, it's everywhere, and it's that that shit scares me. You know what I mean? That's that I feel a little bit less optimistic about. And I what I just said about my optimist optimism around like um, around trans centered feminist politics is maybe like a little bit in contradiction with what I just said about like my concern about like global right-wing politics, because global right-wing politics have really increasingly picked up, um, picked up, uh, like, um, transphobia basically as something that like, um, that sort of, um, that they find fuel in, you know, that fuels their, their acceleration. Um, but yeah. Oh yeah. And I did actually, I did want to add, that's the other thing. That's the other reason that like fascism, 
um, that fascism like uses uh, uses transphobia is because there is still a lot of transphobia, right? Like, so like transphobia is like a really easy, it's kind of like a, it's like, it's not even a dog whistle. It's just like a straight up like gym class whistle that brings all these people who are like, I don't know about that. Like, you know, the, the idea, people are very committed to um, a sharp distinction between men and women. I mean, it's like this, it's like a, it's like a story that like, I don't, I don't know how many people um, at least in my life have like been able in any way to escape that from like the literal day they were born. You know what I mean? Like Butler's like famous example is like, you're born. And the first thing people says is like, it's a boy, it's a girl. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's so strong. Um, and so I think transphobia is equally strong. You know what I mean? When people transgress gendered um, sort of gendered norms. And so it's a really easy way to be like, you know what, do you want your son to become a daughter? If not, then vote for me. You know, and a lot of people are like, no, I don't. Oh God. What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Like, you know. um, can I ask you lastly, how do you feel about the word dyke? I love the word dyke. Oh, I love the word dyke. I think I, I like, I think this is why I, I won't say I do use it's sorry. I'm backing up to think about, to go back to your friend. Who's like, I feel compelled to use they, them pronouns in class. I understand that pressure. And I do feel I have started using like putting like she or they on my stuff. And I have always responded to they, right. And I think they, to quote Susan Stryker, um, uh, who's incidentally the founder and one of the first uh, managing editors of Trans Studies Quarterly, but who has since stepped down as she sort of moves into um, new projects. Um, but Susan likes to say, I've heard her say several times that like in her, in her perfect world, like they would be the sort of like the, um, like the, the uh, what's it called? Like the formal, do you know what I mean? So like, but until you know someone's gender situation, you just use they for everyone. And then when you know them, you use whatever pronoun that they want. But there's like a general they, that's like someone referring to someone as like doctor instead of like their first name, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, but yeah, so I use I, I use she or they now, but uh, sorry, I've now completely lost the thread. So dyke, dyke. Um, but but I when I but I bring like I I I, try, I really try to insist to my students on like the the usefulness of words like dyke, like lesbian, like um, like butch, like whatever other words, because there is a way that like students, at least, and I'm just speaking from my own experience right now, they'll be more comfortable with like um masculine words than they will with feminine words like feminine words carry or I mean not to say that I think of dyke is necessarily a feminine word but it's not necessarily not either but um but like you know that like we'll say you guys and no one has a problem with it but you know what I mean but, but I like to say like hey gender free sisters because like because I think it like emphasizes the way that like any sort of feminine feminine word seems to carry more gender with it um, and yeah, so I love the word dyke. And I think dyke describes all sorts of, like all sorts of positions, all sorts of gender experiences. I don't think like dyke is feminine or masculine or whatever. Um, I know trans dykes, cis dykes, non-binary dykes, dykes. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> it's fun to say. It's fun to say. It's a great Listeners word. try it. Yeah. If you're not at work. <laughs> just or say I'm a dyke. I'm a dyke. <laughs> just buy yourself in your car. Just say <laughs> Yeah, just say I'm a dyke. Like, just feel the power. It feels good. It feels good. <laughs> well, someday I'll have you on the show to talk about um, femininity and uh, talking about gender and the like. The, the inherent like people really love getting drawn to the masculinity. And they really, and they really do. And it's just so. It's um. It's not whatever. It's not sad if that's your experience. Do your thing. But like um. But there, people are still, and queer people are as guilty, if not guiltier than the, uh, about this than other people, um, other people, than like non-queer people. There's just a way that like um, people imagine masculinity or things that code as masculine to be the equivalent of a lack of gender. So like when people reach for androgyny, they often reach for something that looks like in a sort of general generic social way, like masculinity. And I'm kind of like, guys, like, I mean, if that's your truth, live your truth. But at the same time, like, there's all sorts of like really amazing things about femininity too. And I don't think it is unrelated to latent misogyny that like the, the landscape of that is, is what it is. Yeah, I agree. So. So it's been in, been in my pocket for a long time. Oh yeah. Well, let's, um, let's like let several years transpire and then we'll forget that we did this and then we'll do another interview about that. Later. Good. I mean, I was just talking to a senior neighbor who mentioned a story he had mentioned before. And I didn't really, I don't, I don't mind just say, yeah, and then he, he was like, yeah. he had a, and then he had a pause and he was like, I've told you that story before. And I was like, you have, and he was like, darn it. 
<laughs> but I think that's what the podcast is going to be as time yes. goes on. But every time I'm just like, tell me again. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm here for it. Let's just have, I'll interview you next time and it'll be, we'll just do a little switcheroo. We'll do a switcheroo. Yeah. <laughs> just start thinking of questions now. All right, and, every, and maybe I'll just tell you the same things you just told me, but I'll have no remembering. I'll, I'll be like, it'll be fresh. It'll be like, it's never happened. I'll be like, wow, I got to write this down. Maybe I should write something for TSQ. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me as always. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.